0: Like many of us, I was scared after 9-11 and started to pay attention to Muslims for the first time. And I understood that we kind of had two options, join the military and kill them, or we join the missionary corps and convert them. Kill them or convert them were basically our options. So concerned about eternity that we didn't really offer any useful response for people who were suffering under the weight of conflict. At the core of it all, I was never okay with Muhammad sitting on the other side of the table from me as he was full stop. These age-old narratives of nemesis neighbors don't have to endure. Acts of love and humility and kindness can tear at the very stories that bind our hate together.
1: All is not lost. The making of a Brilliance album. Hi everyone, and welcome to the Brilliance Podcast. As you may know, our new album, All Is Not Lost, is out now and available everywhere. Those of you that have listened to the album may have noticed one of the central tensions in the music. A tension between seeing a problem in this world and the question, can that problem ever be changed? Or is it beyond us? Is it something bigger than us? Something that's so beyond us, we'll never be able to solve it. Are some problems too big to solve? You could say it's the tension between hope and despair, or action and apathy. That's where Jeremy Courtney comes in, and that's what this episode is all about. Jeremy is someone who saw a problem, who saw a place of chaos. In this case, Iraq during the Iraq War. That problem, that disaster, that tragedy, that thing that we haven't been able to solve, right? We, we got into this, this conflict and haven't known how to finish it peacefully or how to feel like the conflict is over. It seems like a problem that no one can solve. Well, Jeremy and his family believed that they could help solve that problem. And as it turns out, they're making a real difference right now. Uh, so without any further ado, I'm going to send it to Jeremy. Jeremy. This is Episode 7, All Is Not Lost.
0: My name is Jeremy Courtney, and I live in Iraq with my wife Jessica and our two kids, where we lead the Preemptive Love Coalition. Preemptive Love is based here in Iraq. We consider ourselves an Iraq-based American organization. Key leadership has been living here in Iraq for 10 years. This is our 10th year. From here, then, we work predominantly in Iraq and Syria right now with a significant amount of medical work in Libya. But the core of what everything we're focusing on right now in 2017 is all about Iraq and Syria. Jessica, my wife and I moved to Iraq in the middle of the Iraq war, just moved by the debacle that that war was, and pr- predominantly the aftermath of the actual war and the occupation period afterwards that, that was so poorly handled. We felt compelled to move in and, and just try to be present for the pain, present for the suffering in some kind of naive, optimistic hope that we could make a difference, that, that our presence here might not change the world, but it might at least be able to contribute somewhat to the well-being of the people that we would come in contact with. We'd already made some massive decisions as a family in the post 9-11 world to step a little bit closer to the violence, a little bit closer to the conflict uh, in a time where Muslims were the scariest thing on the planet for a lot of Americans and for a lot of conservative Christians. We chose to move into that neighborhood we experienced violence firsthand. We had bombs go off in our neighborhood, and that was a family decision. That wasn't something that that I pushed us toward or anything. And so it was from that vantage point that we started to just pay more attention to the news headlines and what was going on. And I took a couple of trips into Iraq in 2006 to just see what was going on, to get closer to the conflict, to understand it better. And I came back from my first trip, uh, middle of the night, landed back, and. Our whole community was waiting in our living room for me at like 3 in the morning. And um, they were like, so what's the verdict? You know, you've you've been in Iraq for the last couple of days. We haven't heard a word from you. No communication. What's, what's the plan? What was it like? And I just went on to tell them about the amazing things I saw, the intense suffering, the bombs that went off, the snipers, the bulletproof vest, the danger, the chaos, and said it was amazing. It was phenomenal. It was painful. And I I don't think there's any way we could move there. There's no way we can raise a family there. We had our one-year-old little girl at that point. And Jessica, as I recall it now, just very humbly but firmly said, well, that's nice. Thank you for your report. We've been praying while you were gone, and we're moving to Iraq. It was just this this kind of like cute, naive, but, but very firm and visionary, confident stance that this was worth it, that the sacrifice or the price that we would pay or the inconveniences would be worth it. We've come now to carve out this space for ourselves as very active humanitarian peacemakers or something like that. At that time, that was not the pure crystallized vision we had come out of a more traditional church planting background and i think there was there was definitely an assumption by many by ourselves even perhaps that that would be the the driving force of everything that we would do but we were already having some misgivings with church planting work with traditional missionary type work and thinking certainly the identity markers of those, we were, we were already kind of had one foot out the door from that. It wasn't working for us. And that was all our background and our church had offered us as a way to be right in the world and to be internationally and globally minded and to be concerned about the cultures and, and the places of the world. But it didn't suit us, it didn't fit us. Having moved into these conflicts and taken interest in these people, we found ourselves itching and longing for something more than the traditional options that were offered to us. And so by the time we landed in Iraq and met little girls writhing on the floor with cerebral palsy and and met little kids dying from life-threatening birth defects that were brought on by chemical warfare from Saddam Hussein, frankly, the story of Jesus dies for our sins and we all go to heaven, it didn't, it didn't answer those questions that those families were asking today for their sick kids. And we felt like we, we couldn't any longer be a people, be a family, be a community that was so concerned about eternity that we didn't really offer any useful response for people who were suffering under the weight of conflict and economic oppression and political disenfranchisement today. I had a very profound experience on the way out the door from Turkey, closing down that chapter in our life that was decidedly traditional, decidedly church planting, that was in many ways a mantle that was foisted upon us. And on the way into Iraq, which promised to be different, I just didn't quite know what and how different it would be for us. And that experience was at a conference with like-minded people who were only asking the same types of questions that I was asking about church planting at that point. The whole conversation centered on how can we conquer more Muslims in many ways? so that they will become the followers of Jesus that we want them to be, as we define that. And in that conference, in that moment, I I found myself praying, crying out to God, the same types of prayers that I'd been praying throughout that whole season, which culminated in a very arrogant, kind of like, I'm doing the right stuff. I'm, I'm checking all the right boxes. I've got the formula down. I'm out every day doing the things that I know to do that will result in me being a winner and more people converting to the faith that I preach. Why then, God, aren't you doing more through me so that I will get to be a winner and everyone will celebrate my winning over those stiff-necked Muslims? You know, my prayer was more elegant than that, but I think that was essentially the heart of what was going on. And as I cried out some version of that to God in prayer, I think I heard God maybe for the only time ever in my life say something maybe to the effect of, because you don't love them. I think that was the whole response, because you don't love them. Why am I not working through you? Because you don't love them. Why am I not gonna lift you up to be some kind of winner that other people celebrate? Because you don't love them. And in the real world, I was face down on the floor praying. In my mind's eye, I saw myself in a fists-up aggressive posture, screaming these things out to God. And when that response came, because you don't love them, I saw my entire posture change. My, My hands went from being aggressive fists up in front of my face to down and relaxed and open armed waiting for an embrace. And that was a transformational moment. It wasn't a metaphor. It it actually happened. It actually changed my entire orientation to life in that minute. Because you don't love them entered my heart. And in that minute, I was changed. Like I literally stood up then in the real world from that prayer and I was a completely different person. And I've never battled or combated or sought to conquer in the same way ever again. Like many of us, I was scared after 9-11 and started to pay attention to Muslims for the first time. And I understood that we kind of had two options. We either join the military and kill them, or we join the missionary corps and convert them. Kill them or convert them were basically our options. Because at the base of everything, they were bad and not right and needed to be changed. And, you know, I imagined myself as being categorically different and better than all those soldiers who went off to war with guns to kill them. But after a number of years, I realized that I think actually we were very much the same. I I wanted to conquer Muslims just as much as the guys with guns did. I just sought to dominate them in a slightly different way. But at, at the core of it all, I was never okay with Muhammad sitting on the other side of the table from me as he was full stop. I think it's the most loving, friendly thing to do, to not treat Muslims like a project, to not treat them like something or someone to be conquered, but but to treat them the same way that I would want to be treated. One of the things that we've experienced living among Muslims for years is that Muslims are often very evangelistic in their own way as well. And so I know what it's like to be treated like a project. I know what it's like to be treated like a notch in someone's belt. And, and I know what it's like to have people with duplicitous agendas who present themselves as one thing, but they're presenting themselves differently, you know, among their, their safe community back at the mosque or whatever. And so we've just really endeavored to, to not do that, to love Muslims with open arms in a way that doesn't have a different story for one audience or another, but is just as transparent as we know how to be. So after moving into Iraq in the middle of the war, I was sitting in a hotel lobby one day, a cafe at the hotel, which was where all of the aid workers and journalists and political and diplomat types went when you needed to be sure that you could have internet and electricity and warmth in the winter because the the hotels always had those things. And so the city might be pitch black, but you could often find A number of us at the hotels working in the cafe and so I would go there every day and use it as my office. The chai guy in that cafe and I had kind of struck up a friendship and so he approached me one day and set my tea on the table and hung around awkwardly until he got up the nerve to say you know Mr. Jeremy you've been coming here for a while now can I ask you a favor and he went on to tell me about his little niece who was born with this huge hole in her heart And he told me that after decades of Saddam's dictatorship and war with Iran and UN sanctions against our country and then Al-Qaeda coming to life and targeting our doctors and nurses, there's not a doctor or a hospital even in the whole country that can perform this life-saving surgery that she needs. You're an American, you're a Christian, we've talked about this, clearly you came here to help us. Is there anything you can do to help me, my family, this one little girl that I love? And, you know, it was so far beyond the pale of what I knew anything about. I just tried to hold this guy at arm's length and say, man, I'm, I'm doing good work over here. I'm trying to help orphans over here. Just, but I don't know anything about medical work. I don't know anything about heart surgery for kids. I don't know how to take a child outside the country. I don't know how to bring solutions inside the country. And he just very humbly and winsomely kind of wouldn't take no for an answer and so a couple days later i agreed to meet with his cousin who was the dad and dad shows up to the hotel cafe and as he rounds the corner between the the double doors headed for my table he's got his little girl at his side and so before dad and and his little daughter even make it to the table to sit down you know i i make eye contact with her and i'm I'm a goner. It's it's pretty obvious that I'm going to figure out a way to have to help this child because there's no way I can sit across from her and not think about my own little girl and not wonder how many street corners would I stand on and beg? How many houses would I go to door to door and debase myself asking for people to give whatever they could to save my daughter's life? And they sat beside me and she colored on a napkin and we did our best to kind of understand each other in our broken language and walked out of the cafe that day with me making a promise that I, I would do whatever I could to help them, but I almost certainly would fail them. That I, I didn't know how to solve this problem, I didn't have any of the right contacts and, and I would almost certainly be following up in a day or two with bad news. and. To my surprise, I made a couple of phone calls and they were the right people who knew how to walk it one step down the road. And then we walked as far as we could until we found information to walk it the next step down the road. And that really ushered us into or introduced us to this, this community as when we were able to extend, you know, a little bit of hope into this situation, my phone number just started spreading. People started calling my private cell phone and showing up at my door and taxi drivers that I had maybe ridden in their taxi a day or two before were like bringing strangers to my house and saying, hey, this child has a problem and they need medical attention too, can you help them? And so crazily, our, our reputation just started spreading through the community. The bald American guy is helping these kids who need life-saving surgeries, particularly life-saving heart surgeries was where all of this started. And so we got introduced shortly to hundreds and then thousands and then tens of thousands of kids across the country who needed these life-saving heart surgeries. And before we knew it, we were kind of standing at this fork in the road where the thing that we had moved into the country to do, the humanitarian organization that we had initially started out with was not going to be the vehicle that was gonna help us fulfill our vision for our life and our time in Iraq. And so we started our own organization called the Preemptive Love Coalition really born out of this question that if a lot of these problems we were seeing in Iraq was predicated on this idea of preemptive war, where I jump forward to hit you, to get you before you've been able to get me, attack me before I see the smoking gun, so to speak, then wouldn't it be incumbent on us as followers of Jesus to try to be a community of preemptive love, where I jump forward to love you to serve you, to sacrifice for you before you've done anything to bless me or before you've done anything to harm me. We took stock of what we were doing a couple years in and realized exporting Iraq's problems, exporting the effects of chemical warfare and American warfare and things like this is not going to solve the underlying problems here in Iraq. So we need to stop exporting the problem and we need to start importing solutions and grow up and build local solutions here to local problems. So we started recruiting teams of doctors and nurses who would dare to brave the bombs and bullets and come into Baghdad and other places around the country to work locally and to train local doctors and nurses in and across Iraq. And that was received with such warmth and fanfare. We worked with the first lady, of Iraq. We worked with the prime minister's office. We worked with the vice president and governors and sheikhs and ayatollahs across the country. It ushered us into these amazing places. We were allegedly the first American group to show up in Fallujah without guns, and we were present uh, saving the lives of Saddam Hussein's cousins on the anniversary of his overthrow from power, the very people who should have been most against us because of all they lost with Saddam being ousted, were hosting us as we saved the lives of their kids. So we were just doing this faithfully and excitedly. Our work was growing across the country. But in the background, this group called Al-Qaeda was slowly morphing into a group called the Islamic State of Iraq, and then became the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, greater Syria. and. In the summer of 2014, our work was violently disrupted as ISIS overran about a third of the country, committed genocide against thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people that we're still discovering as mass graves are still being unearthed. And suddenly heart surgeries for Iraqi kids, even building up entire healthcare systems across the country was not the most important thing on anyone's radar anymore. Sadly and suddenly, we found ourselves surrounded by millions of people who were being driven out of their homes by ISIS, who had just minutes, hours before, seen family members slaughtered by ISIS, and who were in search of everything that people need to stay alive. Food, water, shelter, clothes. They had been driven from their homes in searing summer heat with nothing. Are we going to sit by during what may be the greatest human crisis of our lifetime and say that we were a heart surgery organization? We didn't have any responsibility to these people in the streets around us who are looking for food and water and shelter. That wasn't our mandate. That wasn't our responsibility. Or are we going to throw out the game plan, pivot and do everything that we can to adjust ourselves, conform ourselves to their situation and to their need and respond We asked our people, asked our supporters, would you help us respond to these needs? And people showed up with extreme generosity. And we were able to kind of make that pivot with one foot firmly planted in our vision and our mission for the world, this idea of preemptive love. We pivoted on that stable foot toward a different kind of programming so that we would start living that mission out in a different way. And so now since 2014, um, our medical work continues to go strong. Now we've expanded that heart surgery work into uh, as many as 11 countries around the world in any given year. But what we have found ourselves surprised by and, and perhaps even more passionate about right now is the opportunity to go into areas of conflict with food and water and meet people who are either just liberated from ISIS control or right up against ISIS control to meet them with the food and the water and the medicine and the supplies that they need to stay alive. Even when ISIS snipers are, are taking aim at us and um, airstrikes from above are dropping bombs at us. So we've really redefined ourselves as a community, as those who are first in last to leave. We're we're first in because we show up in areas of conflict, going way deeper into the conflict zones than most other aid organizations are willing to go. And we're last to leave because we don't just show up with emergency handouts, but we stick around in these communities. We've already lived here 10 years. We have no intention of leaving. We're going to be last to leave in as much as we're going to stick with them and continue to give them business empowerment grants and training and help them build their lives back up so they can stand on their own two feet and put their lives back together after the destruction of war, whether it be terrorists or tyrants. After a decade of living here in Iraq and living through times of extreme violence and living through times of prosperity and at least maybe a tenuous peace. And then seeing some of the violence cycle back through because it turns out the peace was very tenuous. We never really dealt at a foundational level with what was going on and what was needed to have communities live together with trust. I guess there's this maybe assumption that that all is bleak and all is hopeless and, you know, we're just treading water here, kind of jumping from one fire to another, but that's not at all what it feels like here on the ground. It is not hopeless, weighty days all the time. We can be getting shot at by ISIS one day, we can be targeted by US airstrikes in Fallujah one day, and be completely overwhelmed with joy the next day at the signs of life and hope and renewal that we see. Person by person, family by family, community by community when we continue to commit ourselves to being first and last to leave. The the day that ISIS is driven out of town when I'm walking through the streets and there are literally dead ISIS fighters at my feet, the joy on people's faces is priceless. I mean the the joy of seeing guys shave their beards because ISIS is gone. The, The joy of seeing women rip off their black tent like abayas because they don't have to live under this oppressive, draconian law anymore. That's priceless. I mean, that, that, those are signs of hope and life. When I'm standing over the mass grave of Yazidis, this small ethno-religious group of people that bore the brunt of ISIS's violence, walking through a field and our team stumbles on this mass grave that has seemingly not even been discovered yet. And then we come back a couple of weeks later, and spring has arrived, and there are flowers literally bursting up through the eye socket of a skull. This beautiful realization that even where death surrounds us, there is so much more life. Life keeps pushing through. Life will not be denied. Not genocides, not ISIS, not airstrikes from the sky, not sectarian violence. Life will not be denied and so that's just that's our reality here on the ground that's what we see so much more of than the death and the destruction we see the life on the other side of death continues to just astound us every day
1: we now present to you in its entirety track 11 all is not lost
2: No Shattered, birthing trees Whose shade gives us rest Birthing trees, whose shade gives us rest.
1: Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can learn more about our new album on our website, thebrilliancemusic.com. Please be sure to follow us, The Brilliance Music, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel for album videos. We also would love to address any questions you may have, and would love to hear about what you think about these songs. So email us at thebrilliancemusic at gmail.com. Also, please subscribe to our podcast and rate it on iTunes. Share with your friends, neighbors, loved ones, or anyone who will listen. And special thanks to Jeremy Courtney. This is John Arndt, signing off. This podcast was produced by John Arndt and David Gunger. All interviews conducted by David Gunger. Editing, sound design, and mix by John Arndt.